I will talk to you of art. Yes. For there is nothing else. Are you all ready to join me today in our trip to outer space? Come along quietly or not. Well, you can have all the talent in the world and never get anywhere. Some artist will bait a hook and let you bite upon it. And now, without further ado... Hello, folks. This is another episode of Planet Shivers. I'm Albert Shivers, and on this episode is going to be part two of our conversation with visual artist Don Wilson. This episode is a bit of a Wilson trifecta because I had some editing and cleaning up help with Don's son, and of course, Isaac, Don's grandson, helps me along with this interview. We both um, talked to Don as we did in part one. Um, just a little news, if you're looking to support this podcast, you could now check it out on our new Patreon page. Um, it's under Albert Shivers Artist. There's information on the podcast and the art that I've been up to. And as of now, the podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Podcast App, and YouTube with video. There's also a couple of episodes floating around on SoundCloud. At the moment, for me, I'm preparing for an erotic art show that I was invited to be a part of in New York. Um, that show will be in January. So right now I'm working on three pieces of the four that I'll be bringing to that show. I'm trying to give them all a bit of a comedic slant and also have them all be point of view. So in other words, at least one person in each of the pieces will be breaking the fourth wall, so to speak, and looking at the viewer, which I think will be fun. I just finished a portrait on Charlie Patton, old blues singer, one of my favorites, and probably one of the more spookier dudes in the blues next to Blind Willie John and Lead Belly. Um, you can check out that artwork on my Instagram, at Albert Shivers. And as usual, my buddy Isaac Wilson's helped me out on this one like I said before you can check out his stuff on Instagram at when underscore in underscore zen in this episode with Don we're going to be talking about more of his hitchhiking adventures a possible encounter with Bigfoot meeting Janis Joplin um, he goes in depth on some of his gallery shows that he's been a part of we talk a little bit about what's been going on with Edward Snowden we talk about Don's interaction with Mad Magazine back in the 60s, and we share our experiences on astral projection. So this is a fun episode that sort of bounces all over the place, um, but it does it naturally, just through the conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy part two of our talk with Don Wilson, and truthfully, artists of his generation are getting harder and harder to come by, let alone ones who are willing to sit down, have a conversation that's recorded about their life. So each one of these older artists that I or Isaac and I sit down and, and talk to, you know, always we always get a lot out of it and walk away with way more than we were expecting when we started the interview. And this talk that we've split into two parts with Don Wilson 
is definitely one of those occasions. And Don Wilson will be coming back on this podcast. So look out for that if you want some more Don. We're going to give it to you. So yeah, enjoy the talk. The unknown is always an important part of our lives because you know, if we if we project too far into the future, mm. we can become uh, a little schizophrenic, you know, because we're not dealing right. right with the here and now. And likewise, we all have experienced pain and loss growing up, mm. be they family or friends. And if we get too caught up in the past, we can become maybe a little schizophrenic or stuck back there. And that's not very useful either. Um, the reason I'm mentioning this, my first wife and my son were living with me in Long Beach in 1970. Mm -hmm. And I get the years mixed up, it might be the year before, I'm not sure, but we were looking for a place to move out of Southern California. I decided to go up to Vancouver to see what that was like, Vancouver, British Columbia. Mm -hmm. and. We only had one car, so I, I left the car with my wife. And she'll remind me if this is not true. But uh, So I hitchhiked up. Hitchhiking was a fairly common way of getting back and forth between especially Los Angeles and San Francisco. Right. So I ended up, it took me three, probably three days to get up there. And uh, my last ride before I got there, the day before I got to Vancouver, near Coos Bay in Oregon, on the west coast of Oregon. And um, it was late in the day, and it was getting dark. The person turned down a lane. They lived down by the, the beach somewhere. So I followed, I had a little backpack, a sleeping bag, and I saw this logging road opposite of where the ocean was. So I followed it a couple hundred yards, and uh, it was getting dark. And I just went around the perimeter of where I was for about 100 feet. I saw in back of where I was was a dry stream bed, and there was a bank that dropped down about five feet. So if I had wandered back there in the night without looking, it would have right. fallen yeah. down on all these stones. And uh, so I said, fine. I didn't see any animals around. It was either a full moon or just starting to wane. And, uh, so I was laying in my sleeping bag. I was looking up through the trees at the stars, and uh, I hear this sudden crack, like a really kind of loud crack in back of me where the stream was. And it was, it was somebody breaking a stick. That's as far as I can tell. Right. So I, then you have the option, well, do you get up and investigate this? Right. I have a flashlight or do you stand? So I got up and I just kind of carefully walked over. I knew there was a big tree right near the... So I kind of snuck behind the tree and I looked around and I started to hear rock shifting and that kind of thing. So I looked to my left and there was this large figure, looked like a human being, but like somebody that was on the offensive line of a football team, you know, kind of very large. And uh, it was walking away from me. And I remember I just, you know, all these thoughts go through your head. Somebody lost, you know, they don't know where they're going. Right. Or maybe they're drunk, right. or they're on drugs, or they're confused, whatever. Right. And I, maybe I could help them. So I'm all ready to call out, hey, are you okay? Something like that. And just at that moment, this creature passed so that I could see its back in the moonlight. Right. And I just looked and it was all this short hair all the way down the whole back of the body. Mm. So I just kind of froze. Yeah. 
and uh, all these thoughts. I knew about Yeti, right. the abominable snowman in Tibet. Right. Well, I knew about that. I knew nothing about Bigfoot or Sasquatch. So right. all I knew was I had never seen this in a film. I had never seen a photograph of it, right. a drawing of it, or anything resembling it. Right. It, it wasn't a gorilla. It wasn't a bear. Right. I know what bears look like right. when they stand up. And I just watched it walk away, and it was kind of stumbling a little bit, not real short-footed. So I stayed up all night. <laughs> I sat against the tree facing where it had disappeared from, in case <laughs> it decided to come, come back. I'd see the front of it. You know? So but it didn't come, didn't come back. You didn't get the, you hadn't called out to it. No, I didn't. Okay. I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't. Yeah, on the other probably. hand, on the other hand, if I had just taken a stick and banged it, I might have had a stick in my hand. If I had just banged it, it probably would have turned around, whatever it was, right. and it would have seen it. But then what? And it would have seen you too. It yeah. would have seen me. <laughs> so it's like, all right, I'll err on the side of caution this time. Yeah. You know? So I did. Wow. But uh, it's again, it's like, well, Tom Brown will tell you this, you know, the tracker. If you want to see animals in the woods, you don't go around looking for them. You get off uh, known trails that they use, maybe 50 feet off, and sit quietly half a day or all day right. and watch, and you'll see animals going so by. Right? Otherwise, they'll hear you yeah. long before you'll see them, probably. Uh -huh. Anyway, I did, I showed you over here the drawing yeah. of the, the place where that happened. Yeah. So some artwork. Uh, Came out a lot of a lot of these experiences when yeah. I was there. Yeah. yeah, I met somebody who became well known. I didn't know who she was. She, uh, we, we were in this park with a couple of friends, and it was like a five thousand acre park. It was a huge park, like north of Pasadena. And, uh, mm -hmm. There was a lot of people kind of running around and playing frisbee and smoking and drinking. We were, I was with three other people, and. Uh, we're doing the same thing, kind of just walking around, having this a Sunday afternoon, whatever. Right. You know? But um, they had mounted police. There was mounted police. There was maybe five or six of them. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of having a field day. They were chasing people down mm -hmm. and arresting them from horseback. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we said, well, we don't want to be arrested. And there was all these little hills all over the park. So we were in one hill, and we heard the next hill, we heard this little bit of music coming up out of it very quiet, but mm. so we kind of snuck over there, went down into this little grove where these people were sitting. There's like right. five or six people sitting there. and uh, They just looked at us. We could have been anybody. Yeah. We could have been narcotics officers or whatever, but they, they just gestured us to come down. The woman was playing, the young woman was playing guitar. She was singing very softly, mm. and somebody had a tambourine, but they were playing very soft because they didn't want to attract uh, unwelcome guests and uh, we were there for about 40 minutes and then we said goodbye thank you for the music and uh, sharing the time with us and right. so we didn't think anything of it and then a couple of months later going back in the record store and uh, going through records we were looking at this one record my friend David said isn't that the woman that we saw in the park we were sitting with her and go yeah so it was Janice Joplin and, wow. and we recognized two of the people in Big, Big Brother and the uh -huh. holding company that was their first band. Right. So they were there too. Huh. So that was kind of neat to just treat her as another person and not some yeah. some idol or some right. star, right. you know? Yeah. yeah. That, was, that, was, that was good. Because, you know, everybody's just a person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you forget. Yeah. I forget sometimes. I just, yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so my son and my wife and I moved in 1971. Mm-hmm. Oh, we had an experience of the earthquake. There was a major earthquake and oh. right before we left in uh, February of uh, 1971. I think there was a VA hospital that collapsed and there was at least one or two freeway overpasses that collapsed. So, yeah, I remember the building we were in, we were on the second floor, and it was a wooden frame building, I remember it shaking like crazy, and I just grabbed our son, and we ran down out in the street. Everybody else was out in the street. Right. Hope the house doesn't come down, you know. So, we, yeah, we moved back to uh, New Jersey, and um, we moved to Massachusetts for a couple of years. I, I taught high school art there. Then we moved back. I had an offer to teach in Somerset County. So we moved back there. We were living in Fleming at the, Flemington at the time in uh, Hunterton County, mm-hmm. New Jersey. So uh, that was a big part of my life because I, w- I was there at that school for 26 years. Oh, okay. So um, I think you were talking about influences a little bit. Yes. And that we're all influenced by each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I had about I th- probably, I think, about 30,000 classes there. And, you know, most of them were were very good. Mm-hmm. There's a few that weren't, but right. by and large it was good. But I did have to accommodate my students to, to some degree because they all had a different approach to their work. Right. Some of them really absolutely wanted to be there. They were intent on studying art. Some were taking because they had to. They had to take a, a music class or right. theater class or an art class. Mm-hmm. So... Um, they actually taught me a lot, I would have to say. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a two-way street. Yeah. In what way? Well, you know when you're connecting with them and you know you're doing the right thing and they're understanding you. Mm-hmm. And likewise, they'll let you know if you go off on a tangent sometimes, like I sometimes tended to do. Mm-hmm. And I have to loop around and kind of bring it back and show them where how that's connected with what right. I'm talking about, whether it's... Mm-hmm particular art history lesson or how to do uh, work with clay in a certain way. Right. Um, Obviously, I didn't try to censor them in any way. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they do their own work on their own at home or wherever. And the work I see is in school. Uh, They often did work, I think, just to get attention in some way from the other students in the class. Um, That goes on a lot, goes on, at least it did in my classes. Mm -hmm. And I didn't discourage it at all. In fact, you know, uh, there was a lot of heavy metal people that were in my classes in the 1980s, for instance. And they would do very, what you might call negative pieces where, you know, uh, ax murderers running amok with, you know, lit, bombs ready to blow up people stuff like that mm-hmm. and rather than just saying oh that oh that's nice <coughs> rather than doing that i would say do you mind hey do you mind if i share this with the class you know so usually because it was attention giving in this case or getting right. they say sure so i hold it up and i get p- p- different people's opinions and right. um, so it sort of give this person who maybe didn't want to share it that much, gave him a chance to really uh, feel comfortable you right. know, talking about it, why he did it, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And likewise, there were people who were very skilled at drawing, and I would ask them voluntarily to 
talk about their work, why they did it. And, uh, uh, oh, there was an event at the school, I can't forget this, at the same high school. Uh, it was after school, The kids, most of the kids had gone. This big tractor trailer pulls up by the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. So the principal gets on the PA system. He's all, all teachers and are not busy doing something important show up in the cafeteria. So it was about five or six of us showed up with the custodians. I didn't know this, but our school received a grant for like 500 computers. They were Hewlett Packard Gateway computers. Oh, wow. So this tractor trailer was packed solid. So for the next couple of hours, two or three hours, we had all these hand trucks and bringing them in to the school. Needless to say, that changed the whole tenor of the, yeah. the atmosphere of the school. Uh, in a good way, you know, because it was coming. Right. Obviously, the person that wrote for the grant proposal to get these for the school district yeah. knew that. Yeah. And why not? The money's there. Why don't we get it? Because yeah, it may yeah. not last. So. Right. so, and then there was, you know, there was the downside to it also. Uh, I was asked to teach computer graphics and video production. We had a couple of uh, video editing decks and I think three of the old-style VHS cameras and okay. yeah. put on your shoulder. So that was a challenge because I was teaching the, the regular traditional visual arts, mm -hmm. uh, printmaking, painting, and so forth, rolling, ceramics, the whole bit. So then, and photography was added in the 1980s. We did, we had about six enlargers. So I taught black and white photography also. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole other issue there because you're working in a darkened room and you're right. trusting that the students are going to be respectful of each other and also the equipment. Yeah. And that generally was true, but not always. <laughs> and, and so that was, uh, yeah, that was an important thing to consider, teaching video production, because after a while, after we got used to, students got used to knowing how to use the equipment, what's next? Right. You send them out, two or three people, with a script they don't send them out cold with a script. They tell me what they want to do. Right. They have 45 minutes to wander around the campus and in, in the cafeteria, right. wherever. Not to invade classrooms right. without prior knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so that was always an issue. With The student I mentioned from the 1980s, he was fine, but needless to say, when we had art shows every year, there's no way he could right. include that. Right. I tried that a few times. <laughs> and the administrators would come by and they'd say, Don, what about this piece here? Do you think that's appropriate for this art show? And I would explain it. And then right. they, had to, they had to find a word. If they didn't, if they wanted me to take it out, I took it out. Right. What's the point? But uh, yeah, the video production was very, uh, it was somewhat stressful, I guess you'd say. Okay. But very interesting because I, I found out uh, people that had very little drawing skills, let's say, mm. or art skills, were very good at using the video camera. Right. They seemed to know when to cut a shot mm -hmm. and when to keep filming, mm -hmm. and that's an art in itself. Right. And so that was a big deal, and then editing the pieces and so forth. So it went on from there. It got more complex. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was only a semester class, so there was only so much you can, you can do. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so I had to be careful, too, about what videos I would show them as right. good examples of filmmaking. You had to be, you know, right. you never know. And at a, at, around this time for you, what kind of like personal art 
were you doing? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I was doing my own work uh, away from the school. And also, if, if I was demonstrating uh, starting an oil painting or starting an acrylic painting or a watercolor mm-hmm. or drawing even, uh, so it would take the whole class. So just say, sit down, relax. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do this painting. Get as far as I can, and maybe talk about it a little bit right. as I'm doing it. Right. And they were good with that. They liked that. And uh, uh, and then at the end of it, uh, they knew that typically I would paint over it. Mm-hmm. You know, in a few days, maybe I would develop it there the next time. Right. See them. Let them see how it would develop right. over time, or. If it wasn't that interesting, I might just paint over it. So what happened in the end, they would do a thumbs up or a thumbs down on some of the, you know, the demonstrations I was doing. So on some of the thumbs up, not that I didn't know, but I would say, okay, yeah, this has possibilities. And I would take it back to my studio or my house where I was working and uh, I would complete it there. Right. So, um, yeah, I did want to mention... um, I got into the area of where if you don't have to rely on making music for a living or a visual artist, you kind of have the luxury of doing work free, Mm -hmm. Uh, donate your work, whatever it is. Lawyers donate their services to people that can't afford it. Doctors sometimes will diagnose people without charging them. That's kind of rare. You have to go through a a nonprofit to do that. But... uh, yeah, I designed and printed T-shirts for like soccer groups. Uh, there's Wildlife Refuge. The woman's still around in Clinton, New Jersey area. Mm-hmm. She runs a rehab. She's been doing it for 35 years to uh, try to bring uh, injured wild animals back to life. We probably printed 30 or 40 shirts for her. Mm-hmm. I had some people helping me print them, right. but I didn't, I didn't charge her anything. Uh, there was a group called Hunterton Alliance for Safe Energy. I was involved with them. That was about that was exactly 40 years ago. Okay. That was because of Three Mile Island, mm-hmm. because of the meltdown there. We uh, everybody got really upset. Obviously, um, Jimmy Carter went there. He was president then to check it out because he had a background in nuclear physics. Right. A lot of people don't know that, okay. and he went there to reassure people in the Harrisburg area. But in any case, there was a group of us that met in the, a church near Clinton, there was about 200 people to talk about this. And uh, so, the, yeah, the Hunterton Alliance for Safe Energy came out of that, and it came down to a core group of about 20 of us. So we would go around and do uh, talks, put on concerts for people, and by the way, talk about why it was important to look for other ways of energy, mm-hmm. maybe besides coal, besides nuclear. Right. So. I did a lot of, uh, quite a few, we had a newsletter, I did the artwork for them, you know, the uh, pen and ink drawings, that kind of thing. So, you know, things like that. Um, um, You know, currently actually still doing the same thing. My partner Mary's doing the same thing also. She's doing paintings and doing artwork and uh, donating it. There's a wildlife refuge right near us, but three okay. miles south of here. It's called Meriton Wildlife Refuge. It's okay. been there since the 1950s. That's mm-hmm. about 200 acres. Wow. So I did drawings for their newsletter also for a couple of years. So, cool. yeah. 
since I've been here, I've been here about 20 years now in uh, Pennsylvania, I've gotten involved, there's a group called ACE. I've, I'm involved in three different art organizations. One's in Lambertville, New Jersey. One's in uh, Pluckerman, New Jersey, Center for Contemporary Art. The main one is uh, ACE. It's here in Easton. Uh, it's the arts community of Easton. And they've been very active for, I think, about 23 years now. I didn't, I didn't join them really officially till, till recently. But um, through them, I've been able to uh, exhibit in a number of places. Uh, there's a place called the International Fusion Gallery, and uh, Shalom Newman and his wife uh, run that. Um, that's, that's really an interesting place. Uh, they're trying to bring people from other countries and other parts of the country to exhibit there and talk about their work. Um, I've, I've had exhibits at the Williams Gallery and Grossman Gallery. Mm -hmm. That's part of Lafayette College, which is up on the hill mm -hmm. in, in uh, Easton. Uh, Terra Cafe's been there about uh, six years now, I guess, and I've exhibited there about once a year, probably. Mm -hmm. There's also the Siegel Museum. That is, uh, it was, I believe, it was a theater about in the 1890s, they would put on Shakespeare there and other classic uh, pieces of drama. Mm -hmm. They went through a lot of different phases. It became a, a bridal shop and so right. forth. And uh, the woman that owned it, um, her family and she bequeathed it to Easton to become a historical museum. So mm -hmm. that's still there. So And they allow artists from the area to, uh, to exhibit there. The other thing that I've avoided is just... Uh, Scenes of everyday life. Um, you know, you think of uh, like Goya, the Spanish artist. He was he had his foot in both worlds. He made his living doing portraits of the royalty right. and upper class Spanish society, mm. but his heart was kind of in what was going on in people's lives, their superstitions, right. their beliefs. Mm -hmm. Uh, the invasion of Napoleon's army into Spain, all of that. Um, that's something that I would. Uh, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, piece of work that hasn't seen the light of day yet, and I hope I hope I get to finish it. It's, it's related to 9/11 uh, and subsequently, the invasion of Iraq or Afghanistan and then Iraq, and what that has led to. Uh, yeah, so I think I'm given time. I think I will pull that together and get that out. Uh, I have a, kind of all the parts of it. It's like a puzzle. They're kind of pieces are kind of laying around. So I just need to pull them together and uh, with with the benefit of hindsight, you know, get get that out. Uh, I I just finished a book called uh, Permanent Record. It's an autobiography by Edward Snowden. And there was a film made about him, I think, three or four years ago. I haven't seen it. I didn't see it, but uh, that's a that's a book worth well worth reading, because I, I mentioned 9/11 and the wars in yeah. Iraq yeah. and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the the outward obvious effect of that attack on our country, mm -hmm. whatever you believe it to be, or however it was engineered. Uh, the other thing, which is why I mentioned Edward Snowden, is that it opened the door to 
the infringement on our rights according to the Fourth Amendment, which is to be secure in our houses and in our papers and our personal effects. What that whole uh, cascading series of events uh, produced was the government said, we're not only going to listen in on some of the people that we may suspect right. as being possible terrorists. They did what's called bulk collection, which means they basically collected the data, any electronic data, be it text messages, email, video, anything related to internet, was all collected from everybody in this country. And it's still going on mm -hmm. as we speak. Mm -hmm. right. And that's why he felt his family was very involved in service to the government. And he was too. He was working for National Security Agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, and so forth. He was a contractor for one of them and worked directly with the other. And he got to the point in 2013 where I'm either going to, you know, get out of here. He was making a lot of money at the time. He was either going to get out of here with a really, you know, get through his career, I mean, right. with a really good pension, have a nice life, or he was going to speak up about it. And he decided to speak up about it. Right. And, of course, he got to Hong Kong when, you know, the shit hit the fan. And he was planning to go from Russia to South America, I think. Ecuador, I think. I'm not sure. But he got as far as Hong Kong. He met with a lot of help. He managed to get out of there. Mm -hmm. But uh, en route to Russia, the State Department canceled his passport. Mm -hmm. So that's why he's still in Russia today. Unfortunately, his fiance, he wasn't able to tell her what he was doing when he right. let this out, let this be public. Mm -hmm. She was able to go to Russia. They were married there, so they're still living there. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's just, I think, food for thought for anybody that's using technology to get your work out, just yeah. to be aware of that. Yeah. And what do you do about it if it is true? What's our next step? Yeah. As far as art goes, I mean, I think uh, I've kind of gotten into practice of, like, we're watermarking, you know? Like, we both watermark both our, like, anything we put online, you know? Cause right. It is, like, really depressing, like, seeing your, you know, like, anything you've done, like, in a video seen by thousands of people, and, like, you're not even credited for whatever, so. You always know, like, just spray a little blurb on there, just, you know, your name or your channel. Okay. And even, um, like, to be strategic about it, even, you know, like, if, if I'm putting a watermark on a piece of artwork that will end up online, right? You know, it's, it, you know, let's just, like, using this piece as an example. Okay. If I put my watermark right there, right. Somebody could easily just wipe right over it. Right. right. So you almost have to impede your own art with okay. your watermark so okay. that if someone made the attempt to, to try to exit out yeah. it would be very obvious yeah. yeah do you know by chance either of you how many people have attempted to go through legal channels to remedy theft of intellectual property or artwork or music i i don't i mean know. i don't know anybody and personally certain forms by of social media are a wild west yeah. And whatever, it's kind of whatever happens, happens. Oh, okay. You know, right, right. Unless yeah. you yourself take it upon yourself to A, call the person out, 
or B, try to attempt to say to someone in charge, whoever it may be, okay, to say, hey, this person's, you know, okay, stealing art or or something else, right, yeah, and hope that they care enough to pay okay. you any attention, right, yeah. You know? So, are you talking about like uh, <coughs> like Facebook, for instance, or Twitter, Instagram. or Facebook, Instagram? Instagram? Not to go on too big of a of a thing about it, but I've had two instances where art was taken from me and this per the person who took it played it off as their own yeah. you know as it, yeah. I did this and um, for one of them I took more of a comedic approach because um, I did a portrait of a, a friend of mine went online and someone said oh I did this portrait you didn't do this portrait really so I on, on these sites you could um tag someone directly so that whatever you post is indefinitely seen by this person so i took the name of this thief and inserted it in my in a video and i filmed the jokey video i had someone film me holding, oh, holding the original the that's very cool saying right. this is the original and oh if you God. did it how do i have it like this oh, kind of very interesting being wow. trying to have fun with it rather than wow. get upset yes and angry. yeah yeah just letting the person know in case they say <laughs> it yeah all right. Wow. It's crazy, just the volume of stuff that's posted every day, though. It is, like, it's hard to get control. Yeah. You, keep on, you just got to be yeah, careful with it. Okay. As our conversation moves closer to the present, um, I'd be interested to have you go into your artistic process. You know, as best you can summarize it from beginning to end of a painting or a drawing. Hmm. I think what I <clears throat> what I should say or what I could say closest to your question is, and it's kind of evasive, I guess. No, also, is um, for instance, there's a non-profit organization in Trenton that I've done greeting cards for. Mm. I work with them back and forth. They give me a general idea of what they want me to do, right. and I kind of follow that. They edit it, and change it. That's that's one. Uh, type of work where you're working for somebody or for a specific purpose. In that case, I would develop a couple of um, ideas, a couple of options, directions to go with it, and, and follow through with it. Um, and occasionally I'll do that myself. Uh, for personal work that I'm doing, uh, one of the important sources that I had was from dreams and of course, recalling dreams mm. and either writing down a description of what was going on. Right. And usually it's the tail end of a dream. You don't, I don't re remember the whole thing. Right. Um, or doing a quick sketch. Like you would, you ride in on a bus and you have a little sketchbook. You might mm. do a quick sketch if somebody's falling asleep. It might take you three minutes. Right. So as long as your memory of the dream lasts, that's how long the sketch takes. Oftentimes, um, um, Max Ernst was very interested in this for part of his career, which is uh, frottage, where you just you take a piece of paper, you do a rubbing off of a surface of metal, maybe corroded metal or an old weathered piece of wood, mm -hmm. and it's like very much like looking at the clouds and seeing different. We might see different things in cumulus clouds, right. that kind of thing, and. Uh, so it's sort of like automatic writing, something that you can interpret as being a specific animal or landscape, whatever, and going with that. I've done that 
one of the more complex pieces I've done was done using that um, technique. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I've done, I, my brother Charlie, who I mentioned way back in the beginning of this um, interview, um, he's the one that actually started to teach me how to use a camera, which mm -hmm. belonged to my parents. And I remember um, there was a major flood on the Delaware River where we grew up in 1955. Mm -hmm. There's, I think about 100 people died along the river. And that was amazing to see that, to see the animals that came out of the riverbanks. Mm -hmm. All the rats, all the snakes that would, at night, that would line up along the railroad tracks. Mm -hmm. There was a canal that separated our house from the river. And you know, you put the sticks in the ground and watch the river come up. Right. And uh, that was over a three-day period. And so it was really amazing. It reminded me of The Wizard of Oz a little bit, because if you remember when there's a scene where Dorothy's house is spinning through the air mm -hmm. from the cyclone, I just really vividly remember this house spinning down the river, just coming down the wow. river in front of us, and giant trees colliding with it, and live animals trying to get out dead animals floating by. But, um, so my brother, Charlie, was taking photographs, black and white photographs, and I said, hey, how about me, you know? <laughs> so he, he let me take a couple of photographs, and I, I still have them. Mm. And, or, I, or they may be his, or they may be mine, I'm not sure, we, we shared like a roll of film. Gotcha. Yeah, and uh, so photography is, is very important to me, just for reference. Right because my memory is not that good about remembering how a certain car looked like right. or an airplane or an animal. I really rely on that a lot. But I, getting back to your, your question, um, I think we all do automatic writing sometimes. We don't call it that, but you know, you're on a phone with somebody and you want to write, you write something down because you want to remember it. Right. So automatic writing can, you know, uh, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times, you know, mm -hmm. the novel by uh, Charles Dickens. Uh, every book starts with a word and a sentence, and, uh, you know, the tale of two cities. Um, so every painting or every drawing, whatever it may be, it may be, uh, you know, Tintoretto's paintings, which some of them are really huge. I remember seeing them in Venice and Italy. Mm -hmm. They're like... 30 feet long and maybe 15 feet high. Right. Um, they were the filmmakers of that day, obviously. Mm -hmm. They tried to get everything in in one canvas. Everything right. going, something's going on in this corner, something else is going on down here, and uh, somehow they all you know, relate. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I take the same approach with painting in that, you know, and they'll tell you this in school, if you take uh, technique classes with, in a painting class especially, um, be it oils or watercolors or acrylics, um, the, the credo always was, generally, what I was told was work thin to thicker and thicker and build up gradually, mm -hmm. the layers. And it makes sense from a physical standpoint because you're kind of not sure when you're starting out with a painting, which unless you know, unless you've drawn it out beforehand. Obviously, right. a lot of artists have worked directly on a canvas or a paper without any preliminary drawing. Right. That plain air painting, maybe that's a whole skill in itself. Mm -hmm. But that's typically what I would do. Right. Was just as I became more confident about where it was going, what I was doing, 
then they start to do more impasto or more definite forms, mm. more contrast. And, uh, and then, of course, it's like a story. You know, where do you end the story? Right. You know, if you're writing a, like a children's story, where, where does it end? How does it end? Yeah. Is it a happy ending or so-so or, mm. not, or a sad ending, you know, mm-hmm. depending on what you're trying to, trying to get across. I was sad to see that um, Mad Magazine has ended its publication. I guess, yeah. did you hear about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, apparently, what what I understand is they're they're going to publish old issues, but with new covers. So they're going to, I guess, yeah. hire okay. somebody to make new covers from yeah. something that was made in 1957. Oh, I mean, they sure. started in 1952, so they had a long run. Yeah. Uh, that they really impacted me in the 1950s. I mean, yeah. you know, it wasn't all that I read, but right. I, I would look forward to, you know, the next oh, yeah, issue. There was nothing, there was nothing <laughs> yeah, I think like that. I think it was a quarter or something. Mm-hmm. But part of it is there's so many there's so many good comedians, and uh, people that have a knack for making people laugh, which we all need to do. There's so much of that on internet, and uh, you know, the print media, you know, is sort of falling by the wayside, especially yeah. newspapers, but it's obviously impacted a you know, popular long-standing magazine yeah. like that. Did I mention that I went to Mad Magazine once to apply for a job? Or probably, I don't think, I can't remember if I did. Yeah. Great I, to tell the story. Yeah, yeah, just briefly. I, yeah, uh, yeah I, when I graduated from Temple in 1965, I decided to go to Mad Magazine. I had these mm-hmm. visions of, you know, doing advertising and illustrations and, mm-hmm. you know, making it big right. in the ad world. You know? uh-huh. And uh, so, yeah, I went to two or three places, you know, to conserve transportation. I went to two or three places. Mad Magazine was one of them. And uh, they liked my work, actually. And they kind of, I don't remember their names. One guy was really tall and the other guy looked like a bear or a beaver. He was really <laughs> stocky and short. They both had suits on. I was expecting they'd be like kind of bohemians, you know, with right. like paint spattered shirts and mm-hmm. kind of all akimbo and kind of laid back. But um, they were they were all business, which was cool. But they enjoyed looking at my work and uh, mm-hmm. they they kind of offered me a job. They weren't BSing me. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then they said, one of them said, "Well, by the way, what's your draft status?" So at the time, you know, you were classified 4F or 1A or whatever. So I was classified 1A. So they looked at each other, and I looked at them, and they looked back at me, and I said, yeah, I, I guess if you start training me to work here, I could get drafted in three months or six months. And yeah. they're like, yeah. Mm. You know, so they said, come back when you get through that, and we'll talk. So I never went back. Okay. Um, I did a really interesting drawing that I was going to take there, but uh, so the, I guess the lesson there is: you're thinking about doing something, do it. Yeah. Don't wait. You know. Yeah. Uh, you think things are going to be here forever, and uh, the pyramid still is. Yeah. <laughs> and my uncle Elmer's input into the Princeton University Chapel—that's mm. still there. Wow. He almost died working on that project. And, that's why it was close to his heart. He, he told us a lot of stories. He, he was up on the roof. They were working on the, the ribbing of the roof. Mm-hmm. And he, he was walking along. They had like two by eights, long two by tens, two by tens, two by twelves running the length of the building. It's a huge building. 
and there was a workman doing something kneeling down near him, and he stepped on the end of a board that wasn't supported, and he was like a sliding board. He just started going down. He was about 90 feet up, and this other guy over here, like where Isaac is, and I'm him, he, as he was going down, he had overalls, and he grabbed his overalls, and just, Uncle Elmer was kind of slight, he wasn't real heavy, and he just like pulled him back up. Wow. So he was in his late 30s then, so he had a lot of stories to tell. And his brother, my grandfather, mm. you know, we won't go into that another, another time. But, uh, yeah. So could you go into a little bit about um, what you're working on now? Yeah, I showed you that, that <clears throat> oh, I didn't show you. I guess not. Oh, We've seen the piece outside. Yeah. Uh, hold, hold, hold on a moment. We'll get, hold that thought. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I've lost work, and everybody, after time, you lose work, uh, whatever it may be, especially physical things, right. be it sculpture or paintings. Uh, all these things um, happen. And also, they can be lost by lack of attention, for a better word, okay. forgetting about them. Right. In the case of paintings, you might put it away in a closet or in a garage or in an attic, and it stays there, mm -hmm. and you never go back to it. So I've, I found a few pieces in the studio building where we work, and uh, I found a couple pieces I totally had forgotten about. So they're like they're like old friends, you know? Right. Like, oh, I remember you. Yeah. And, uh, I think I mentioned the next thing that I do want to do are uh, paintings and work relating to um, the environment and the impact of development. Mm -hmm. uh, right over here across the river in Phillipsburg, there's a huge warehouse. About two months ago, I went inside of that and photographed some of it because I, I, like now I wouldn't be able to do that. It was on a Sunday. Right. Nobody was working there. That's the largest warehouse that's being built right now in this country. Mm. and it's going to impact the whole area. There's a stream that runs right behind it. Mm. There's Route 22, which they're right. probably going to have to enlarge. Yeah. And they, they chose that because Southern Norfolk Railroad goes through Easton and goes right in back of there. And parts can come in there or go out there, but it's, it's mainly going to be truck traffic. Mm. So, you know, how does that impact uh, the environment? Uh, we've lost about a third of the volume of birds in this country, a third of the volume of it. Wow. In other words, 1950s, mm -hmm. there was 30% more fowl, birds flying around wow. and in the lakes. That's, so, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's not something like science fiction. It's not down the road. It's, it's right. happening. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be negative. It's just, no. you know, you, you have to be aware of these things. Yeah, uh, be because what, what happens to them eventually happens to us, you know. Yeah. So, and we don't think of it that way. We just think of animals as, well, they're nice. We, we hunt them sometimes. We eat them sometimes, maybe. Right. If we're into that. And uh, mm. as companions. I used to take a, a sketchbook to the YMCA, a little one. And you can buy sketchbooks with waterproof paper. With markers, mm -hmm. so if they get wet, it doesn't matter. You know? right. But I remember I was in the wet sauna one time. There was like five or six people in there, and the wet sauna is only eight feet long, maybe. 
four or five, four feet wide. Mm-hmm. Suspension is going down. It's like a U shape. And you know, as the steam comes up, you you see somebody across from you, but then you can't see them. But then it kind of clears, and you see them. Right. So I this was the point where I was drawing people rather out in, out front, like I'd be waiting for a ride, maybe, or just relaxing after doing weights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people would be sitting at a table, and it would catch my attention and do a sketch. But there was a a woman and a young guy, older woman and young guy. They were down in the corner. I knew they were over there. And I, every once in a while, the steam would kind of lift up. And then uh, I'd look over a second time, and they'd be really going at it, kind of clenching each other and French kissing and the whole thing. And I just thought that was kind of cool, you know, <laughs> like a little private place to go to hang out and appreciate each other. So, you know, still have that sketch, but um, and just seeing people on the street and in the country and in in the city, you know, just I think that's important to, yeah. to share perceptions. We all see it; everybody sees it every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, people might take out their cameras and you know their cell phones and make videos mm-hmm. without asking people. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's that's an issue too. Uh, so. Yeah. So uh, getting back to me doing work for nonprofits and your question about how ideas develop, it's the Penn State Extension Master Watershed Steward Program. It's kind of a lengthy title, but Mary and I have been involved with that for a couple of years. So we've we've done artwork for them. Yeah. So with me, it depends. I, I would like to recall dreams more. I've not been doing that very often. Uh, I've gone out of my body a few times. Some people can do that at will. Yeah. And I know a couple of people that can do that. I can't do it. With me, it's involuntary. And I often get, well, the last time it happened, it was like the incident with Bigfoot. It was like, do I say something or don't I? Mm -hmm. And with that, where you recognize that you, whoever your consciousness Mm -hmm. is, is out of your physical body because you can look back and see your physical body laying there or sitting there. And maybe you're looking out a window on the third floor in San Francisco and you're at a party and you're looking back and seeing what's going on. I got down the hallway and floating here, your point of view is different. You're up near the ceiling looking down at your body. So then you're looking out and it's at night and you're seeing the lights out there and the Mm -hmm. cars going by. And you go, well, I got this far. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Do I keep going? You know, mm. and uh, I pulled back. I both times I pulled mm-hmm. back, and almost like it's weird. You know, what I'm talking about. It's almost like a rubber band. You're just like, right. Yes. you're right back in your it's body. Like, oh, it felt extremely fragile. Yeah. Like I and I, I noticed it, and I noticed that if I did anything that would shake that state, I would. Go right yeah. back. Yes. So it yeah. was this maintaining of... Yeah. Yeah. You can't be in awe or you can't... Yeah. You got to just sort of have like this neutral sort of look on it. Mm-hmm. It's weird. You know. So I guess that, that's correct. That's that's true. And that's hard to be aware of when you're in that state. And if you recognize it, and I, it sounds like you have recognized it. I don't, I don't know. I shouldn't, I shouldn't presume, but it sounds like you've recognized that. And that's... It's yeah. a neat little trick. I mean, I want, you know, if it is, that is how, if that is what happens, you know, like, there has to be a way to, like, go somewhere you've never physically been, like, find the intent to, like, 
fly or travel somewhere where you haven't you have no knowledge of this place or the surroundings and then like go there later on to kind of validate whether or not it's true but yeah I'm still getting that that point you know I guess there's certain steps you got to take just muscle control to sort of get paralyzed okay so what you're describing is that in that state you're you're really an explorer yeah, and in a sense, you have no companions with you at that point, maybe. And so you're kind of making the decision for yourself. First, you know, right? Where to go? Where to I mean, go with it? I don't know. Some yeah. people I know said they, they, they see spirits everywhere. They see, you know, entities or other things flying right. around. But right. like like the clearest clearest memory I have of it, and again, this could be a dream. It could, yes or no, you know, who knows. But uh, I only got as far as like right above my body. And again, I kind of like... <laughs> Like flipped out. It was like, oh shit! You know, yeah. flew back in. Like, yeah. So I think I think it's possible, but yeah. yeah, it's just trying to takes a lot of skill, I guess, a lot of concentration. All right. Yeah, that happened to me. Uh, I mentioned Ravi Shankar, mm -hmm. and that happened to me. Yeah, around the time I was listening to that music, um, as Isaac mentioned uh, in his experience. Uh, I was laying on my bed, just relaxing at night, just not doing anything, just laying on my back, relaxing. And I went up out of my body and, as it were, flipped over up against the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And I could see myself laying, not doing, I think my eyes were open. Even. And then I thought, uh, am I dying? You know, what's going on? Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I had. Mm -hmm. and. I remember jumping up, I was kind of panicked because it was the first time that happened. Right. And I was trying to calm myself down. And uh, so I remember I was looking through my records, uh -huh. The Doors, no, Janis Joplin, no, Jimi Hendrix, no. Yes. I put Ravi Shankar on, oh. I just sat down and just listened to it for about a half hour yeah. and I got kind of calmed down. Yeah. And I started talking to people about it, and mm. whether they had had that experience. This is one, this is kind of very idealistic and a little bit sentimental, but it's the title of the uh, one person show I had there at Nurture Nature. This was mm -hmm. three years ago, 2016, 2017. Uh, it's called Sentinels of Sentiment. Usually you have a, a, an artist statement that you might include with the work. They wanted me to put something on the card that was distributed around the city. Mm. So I wrote this, I had to write something, and it kind of relates to this image called Ancestors, which are all right. small sculptures yeah. from the Princeton University oh, Museum. Wow. So uh, what I wrote, uh, it's very simple. Uh, Human sentiment and expression have inspired and helped to shape various cultures and beliefs from many sources seemingly now flowing into a single river. The ever-expanding holographic tapestry of life has been woven, torn apart, and remade by all of us, human and not. It's just kind of an overview of what I felt that exhibit was about. So it's a lot of older work and some new work. Yeah. We're around about, about the time to wrap up. Okay. Isaac, do you have anything you'd like to add in? It's been a 
been a blast kind of. Yeah. Thank you both for being here. Yeah, and, uh, was there anything really... else that you wanted to cover? Uh, you got like a website or anywhere? Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, was the man the with the answer. Well. This was put together by, basically by my nephew, Alex. He's very skilled at uh, working with computers and websites. And uh, so it goes like this. This is, uh, this is what he made up for me, all lowercase. It's we, instead of you, it's wetube.us forward slash Don Wilson Visual Arts. That's it. As far as I know, it's still there. Yeah, I, haven't yeah, I, I was at it not too long ago. Okay, I haven't so it should at still it. be there, yeah. and we'll um, we'll put it with with this audio, so okay. that if folks were interested, they could. Okay, that that's that's, that's kind of you. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you have any up, upcoming shows? Yeah, yeah, or? that was the question I knew was coming. Uh, <laughs> I I'm sort of uh, hunkering down and, and going going through stuff. I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, Artists have done all kinds of crazy things with their work. Mm -hmm. I know I heard one person that didn't like some of their work, and this is polluting, of course, but they took it to the river and did like frisbees with their pants uh -huh. out into the river, and the river carried it downstream. Another local artist, probably about 80 years ago, lived in New Hope, mm -hmm. very well-known uh, New Hope Impressionist School, they were called, uh, artists. He actually burned a large quantity of his works. Wow. Uh, which was his prerogative, but it was—it's yeah. a shame. Uh, I know the uh, the illustrator N. C. Wyeth, who was mm. influential on, on my own work, because I kind of grew—he illustrated a lot of the classics. He, when he would take his work to New York uh, to Scribner's or wherever they were publishing the classic books, he—they would—they would keep the painting, they would photograph it at the printer, and you know get the plates made. Mm -hmm. And then they would say, and see, you know, here's your painting. We don't need it. And he would, fortunately, they did that because they were very beautiful paintings, a lot of them. He put a lot of time into them. He would take them back. But there were occasions where it was a smaller piece and he just did it. Right. And he would take it and he would get the gesso and paint over it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but he would do that and just because he was very driven. He, that's right. all that he did. Unfortunately, he died at a relatively early age and... He was going towards surrealism, from what I understand and mm -hmm. what I've seen. Who knows, you know, what he might have, might have done. He was mm -hmm. starting to experiment a lot. Mm -hmm. But uh, in any case, I want to thank both of you for making the effort to come no, down here. And, you're welcome. This yeah. was a, it was a Thanks. pleasure and an honor, and I'm yeah. glad we could Likewise, to do it. It's mutual. So, Great. Thank you. All right, and that's part two of our conversation with Don Wilson. Hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, Don Wilson will be back. And again, you can listen to this Spotify. Uh, you can listen to Spotify. You can listen to this podcast and all the ones that came before it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, the podcast app, and YouTube with video accompaniment. You can support the podcast on Patreon. You can check out my work on Instagram at Albert Shivers. And you can check out Isaac's work on Instagram at when underscore in underscore zen. In the comments section or the details section will be Don Wilson's website for his art. You can see more pieces of his work and even purchase some prints if you'd like. Next week we're going to have a real cool guest. Hope you're able to listen. 
Talk to you soon.